Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I'm your host. And today we have an exceptional episode from two of the Arizona Wildlife Federation's most valued affiliates. That's going to be Southern Arizona Quail Forever and Valley of the Sun Quail Forever. We are going to talk to you all about uh, these great organizations, the work they do. We're going to talk to you about quail hunting in Arizona, methods, techniques. We're going to talk to you about dogs for quail hunting. We are going to talk to about talk to you about other upland species you can chase. We're going to talk to you about quail habitat, natural history, everything you need to know to get out this winter um, and start chasing these wonderful birds around. Um, and you know, this is a perfect time to do it. I think uh, two weeks ago, I talked to you about my, my misgivings with uh, the big game hunting seasons wrapping up, but I did mention how wonderful it is to have these other small game and upland uh, and waterfowl opportunities available to us throughout the winter months. Um, and you know, one of my favorite things to do this time of year is take my pup out in the field and go chasing quail around. And you know, if you've done it before, I'm sure you already get it, but if you haven't, you're really missing out. This is a blast and these are delicious little birds. So I highly recommend getting out there and uh, enjoying some of these winter months, burning some boot leather in our deserts and grasslands here in Arizona, chasing these magical little birds. All right, only one quick announcement for you before we get into our show, and that is I want you to save the date, and that date is January 17th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The Arizona Wildlife Federation and all of our valued affiliates will be holding our annual Camo at the Capitol events um, in downtown Phoenix at our state capitol. This is our opportunity as sportsmen and women and conservationists to come together on the Capitol lawn and show our state decision makers that that we stand together for conservation in our great state. We stand together for wildlife and wildlife habitat, and we stand together for access to our amazing public lands. So I'm inviting you to come on down and just hang out. Come on down, meet some of your representatives, and shake hands with with those running uh, conservation organizations throughout the state. Um, Chit chat, try some wild game dishes. We always serve up a variety of awesome wild game uh, samples to serve our, our senators and representatives and agency folks for lunch. Last year I served up Oh, over 50 bobcat tamales to Capitol staff and legislators, and not a single person turned their nose up at it. I was real proud of that. It is a great time, I promise. So just come out, hang out, uh, meet some of uh, your state's greatest conservationists and our decision makers, and have a good time. Um, it's, it's a great way to spend the day. We'll be down there again from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. That's on the Wesley Bolin Plaza, just right out in front of the state capitol. We'll be a big old crowd. You won't be able to miss us. So I look forward to seeing you there. Enjoy this episode with two of Arizona's chapters of Quail Forever. See you after the show.
All right. Welcome, fellas. Thank you for being here. I do appreciate it. Um, we'll just uh, we'll jump right in with introductions. Let's uh, let's start with you, Brian. Who are you? Yeah, name's Brian Lathrop. Uh, I'm a father and a husband and a grandfather and a businessman and an outdoorsman and a traveler and uh, I really enjoy life. And uh, uh, in my retirement years, I want to try to make a difference in some way or another. So, uh, and then I'm also the vice president of Valley of the Sun Quail Forever in Phoenix, Arizona, one of uh, three uh, quail uh, chapters in the state. That's outstanding. That's a a great introduction, Brian. Thank you. How about yeah. you, Jim? Mm-hmm. Uh, my name's Jim Littlejohn. I live in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I spent 61 years in northern Indiana and uh, came out here because of, uh, it's called Blue Sky, and almost 80-some percent of our land here in Arizona is is public land. Oh, amen. And, uh that's the main reason I came out here. Ah. So uh, in case folks missed that, we have uh, representatives of both uh, Valley of the Sun Quail Forever, which is Brian, and then Southern Arizona Quail Forever, which is Jim. And uh, we at Arizona Wildlife Federation are fortunate to have both of those groups as affiliates to our group. So we're very appreciative of that. So Jim, did you hunt this morning? No. Uh, I was going to, and, uh, then my, my, I hunted yesterday and my one dog was, was limping a little bit. So it was called a trip to the vet Yeah, and, 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 and everything. And, oh, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. So yeah, but I'm going tomorrow morning with my other dog. I've got two short ears, a 10 year old and a, and a two year old. Yeah. I think, I think I've hunted and, behind your 10 year old before. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The, those, Dogs add a whole nother layer of complexity and and also value to to this upland thing, but we'll get into that more. How about you, Brian? Do you get out and hunt? I did actually go hunting this morning. There's a uh, a chucker pheasant ranch in Buckeye, and uh, I have a ten year old German short hair pointer and a ten year old poodle pointer, and um, so we went out there and it was more about watching the dogs do their thing, and it was a lot of fun. So, and we got, uh, most of the birds we put out. <laughs> well, um, I have a four-year-old German short hair pointer and he is enough for me. I, I, as much as I love him, I would never add another dog to the mix. Cause quite honestly, keeping up with him and he's a good dog, but keeping up with him takes every ounce of extra mental energy I have, um, outside of what I put into my family. So I don't think I could ha- add another one. But then again, you know, I, I don't treat him like a lot of folks treat hunting dogs. He's a constant companion. He's with me everywhere I go. So two of them would just be too much for me. But I commend you fellas for doing that. Well, I'll tell you, when you get to it, Michael, and, and this is this is one of the, when I came out here, I didn't, I didn't know how to quail hunt. I mean, I'd pheasant hunting back in Indiana a little bit and everything. But uh, I learned that besides being a wonderful experience of, of learning how to, to train the dogs and work with the dogs, it's called, it kept Jim Littlejohn in shape too. Yeah. And, and that, that was part of my point. long-term plan. So, you know, it, right. it, it makes a nice difference to help keep the old man in shape too. There you go. Um, 
you know, just for a little context, I want to throw in here how I know you guys, because um, because I don't just know you through, well, I guess Jim, I do know you through conservation uh, stuff, uh, but Brian, Brian, it was funny. I was talking to my cousin Angie back in Missouri, and turns out her husband's sister was married to this fella lives out in Arizona that was deeply entwined in the conservation circles. And she told me all about this guy. And I was, I don't know why I don't know him. I should, it sounds like we run in the same circles, you know, we know the same people and uh, sure enough, that turned out to be Brian. So, so small world there, but. So the the rest of the story is I went to a uh, reunion and I had known this lady for uh, 10 years and we were talking about this, fellow that lives in Arizona that loves hunting and loves all that and mind you I've known her for 10 years and this finally comes up so she gave me her name Michael's name and I reached out to him and said hey cousin how we doing yeah (laughs) and you had been here for a while too so that was pretty funny yeah yeah that was funny well and then then Jim I feel like I've known Jim for a long time as well um Jim you you were part of Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers correct or am I yeah, we started okay. that. There was three of us that started that about yep. twelve years ago. Awesome. And, and uh, yep. Well, I, for, I I assume that's how you and I started talking. I know I got to got to hunt with you. I think shortly, at least one time before, if I'm not forgetting another. But uh, but yeah, somebody I've always held up on a pedestal. So, all right, let's uh, let's get into this this quail stuff. Um, I want to talk to you guys because one, it's, you know, big day- game hunts are winding down and I, I'm a very, I'm a generalist hunter. I love chasing everything from deer to frogs, to squirrels, to quail. I, I just get excited about it all, but um, I do, I, I love upland hunting enough that I, I bought and, and deal with my own dog. Um, and I got too many shotguns and then all of that good stuff, but, but it's quail season. Um, and like I said, with those, with those big game seasons, Winding down, um, I hear lots of fellas complain about the draw and how they didn't draw anything, so they're not hunting this year. And all I can do is shake my head to that because there's so much great opportunity out there, um, and that includes upland and quail. Um, but let's uh, let's talk about. I guess we'll start with what species are available for the upland hunter to chase here in Arizona. And you and you gentlemen are welcome to jump in here wherever you like. There's only three of us, so we ought to be able to handle this. Well, there's there's certainly um, the three huntable species of uh, quail here in the state, uh, the merns and the scalies and the uh, gambles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also those fun blue grouse uh, in some fun little areas of the state. And there's some chuckers in this state, too, as Michael well knows, because yep. I think he's gotten uh, all five of those species. Um, and there's some of their small games. So it's, it's not really limited to upland stuff too, which is, um, easy to go and go after squirrels and rabbits and, and, uh, jackrabbits and things too. So it's not like if you, if you've not drawn a tag, there's lots of opportunity in this state, which is a beautiful thing about this state. Right. Well, let's, let's start with, uh, let's end this on, on quail. Let's start with those grouse and those chucker. Cause you know, there's a lot of folks that don't even know that those opportunities exist in our, in our state. Um, I don't know if you fellas have been up to the, the strip to chase chucker, but let me tell you, it's, it's, uh, it's big game effort for a small bird. Um, 
You know, I, I've told the stories about Chase and Chucker on this podcast before back. I think we did a, a small game challenge uh, podcast before and that whole story is there. So I'm not going to bore people with uh, with the, telling that again. But let me tell you, it's an adventure going after those birds and they're, they're no joke. Just getting into that country is, is very difficult. But um, they're, they're, they're an interesting species to chase and they certainly inhabit some amazing and big and desolate country. So I'd highly recommend people to put the time in to chasing those birds. Um, <laughs> I have heard though, and I wouldn't put it past my dog. I, I found my birds down in the bottom of a, of a canyon that took a heck of a hike to get into, but I've heard they inhabit the rims of canyons as well. Although I didn't find them up there, but uh, yeah, I know my dog would probably chase a flushed bird right off the edge of one of those canyons. So that might be something <laughs> to think about if you're up there hunting with dogs. But, uh, and then that leaves grouse. Have either of you fellows been out chasing those grouse? I have. I've, I've tried it and, and, and never been successful. Uh, and, and seen some beautiful country up at Greens Peak and, and, and some mm-hmm. of those areas, but, uh, never have seen one yet. All right. Well, to, to be so fair, I, I, I didn't look for, uh, gr- mm-hmm. go ahead. So Brian. I look for grouse, um, probably four years before I finally found some all, all at the North Kaibab. And mm-hmm. it was kind of funny because um, that particular year where I finally found some, um, I probably saw six or seven of them, but we ended up, I had my dogs in my truck and we ended up at this little um, area just uh, outside of the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. And mm-hmm. we're parked in this area where there was a bunch of campers or campers and uh, I saw a couple of these young grouse walking on the ground, and all of a sudden, there's a grouse on my windshield. Mind you, I'm in the <laughs> truck, and my dogs are in the back. He hops on the windshield, walks over the top of the truck, and then hops up and you know walks away. And fortunately, I actually got a picture of it because nobody would have believed me. And uh, oh, but I... it was pretty funny. And no, I didn't shoot it. I let it go. And you know, you're not going <laughs> to shoot around a bunch of campers anyway. But sure. uh, it was hilarious, hilarious. But they're well, fun birds to find. They are my my favorite thing about hunting them. Um, at least, and I've only hunted them up on the Kaibab. Um, you know, they do occur on some of the San Francisco peaks uh, around me up here, and then uh, also over in in the White Mountains. But um, what I like the best about them is that country is just explodes with the the golden aspens uh, in September. Mm-hmm. So it is a wonderful time to be out there in that country, hiking around in those woods. Yep. All right, let's get back to quail. Um, that's what I invited you guys here for. Uh, let's start with Gamble's quail. Jim, could you tell us a little bit about the range and habitat that Gamble's quail, Gamble's quail inhabit? That Gamble's quail are, are desert birds uh, around here, as we call them. And they... Uh, uh, are the most uh, proficient, most, most, most of the birds around here are, are gambles. Mm-hmm. And they'll, you know, they might go a mile, mile and a half. They, they probably venture more than, than uh, for sure the Merns does and, and maybe even the Scalies. Um, we have found that, that, you know, right now the December rains are the ones that make the the, the big difference for them in in uh, their nesting season in 
in April mm-hmm. and everything so that there's plenty of grass and plenty of bugs and everything for the, for the chicks to grow. And um, I'll tell you, they, they, and again, I live in Tucson, so I'm, I'm closer to, to Mern's country than Brian is. But the last two years, there's been so many uh, good, really big coveys of gambles around here that, that I've only gone down a couple times for Mern's the last couple of years. Yeah. And uh, their habitat is... is uh, they, they, if you find some, some, some cat claws, some white thorn acacia, of course, the, the mesquite trees, uh, they'll, they'll eat a, a, a wide variety of grasses and forbs, mm-hmm. uh, prickly pear. If, if there's some, you know, they'll eat the fruit of the prickly pear all the time. You, you, you'll yep. see them once in a while in the spring and their, their whole nose and, and, and face will be purple. And that, that's from eating the prickly pear. Uh, they're they're uh, uh, typical wild animal. They don't die easily. I mean, that, that's, I've changed to, to six shot lately instead of seven and a half and, and had, had, had much better luck at, at knocking down the birds. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. It's, it's, it's just a great sport. Yeah. You know, now that you did an excellent job answering that question, Jim, but I did a terrible job asking it because I got, I got you guys switched. I should have asked Brian about the, uh, the gambles and then stuck you with the scalies and the, and the Merns, uh, AKA Montezuma. But, uh, with that said, I know both of you gentlemen are well-versed in all of these birds. So Brian, I'm going to go ahead and stick you with the scale coil. Can you tell us a little bit about them and, and where you find them? Well, first of all, they're gorgeous. They have this bluish mm-hmm. color. And uh, I actually didn't start hunting scalies until about maybe three years ago, but they're in the southeast part of the state. Um, they uh, run and fly kind of like gambles, but it seems like when they uh, take to the air, where gambles will fly maybe 30 or 40 yards and start running, these things seem to fly about 100 yards and then start running. So uh, that's pretty interesting. They also have a, they're in a higher elevation. Uh, they're certainly uh, mixed in with gambles in a lot of places, but uh, they um, are in a grassier area, more open area. Um, and I also learned that uh, at night when it gets cold, and if you have dogs, you might as well just hang out and camp until maybe 10 o'clock or so because they cluster up. And they're not moving around, so dogs aren't going to get any kind of scent at all. So, and it also gives them a chance to, you know, do their thing before you go out. Um, yeah. But they're a gorgeous bird, and uh, uh, you find a lot of them around the Wilcox area and some of the mountains mm-hmm. uh, and some of the higher elevation areas around that. In terms of the foods, they kind of eat some of the same stuff that the gambles eat. Um, yep, yep. And they're... Um, they have a little bit wider range in terms of where the cubbies are. So the, the, um, they might travel a couple miles as opposed to just the 1.2 miles that a gambles uh, will do uh, normally. So, yeah. Now are they, are they dependent on winter rains like gambles or are they a monsoonal species? They're both. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. It is a good question, but they're, they're the ones that, that, that really benefit from the December rains but also the monsoon rains because of, of where they are located and everything mm-hmm. around Wilcox mostly and, and uh, up towards Safford. 
and 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 uh, when I was talking to the Arizona Game and Fish folks about that, uh, they said exactly that both those rainy seasons make a difference uh, for the scalies. Interesting. All right. So yeah, the, the way you describe the habitat, that's exactly where I found them. Uh, it's typically open, open grassy uh, areas, and then I've also found them in some some more mountainous uh, terrain as well as down there in the southeast. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my, my spots are down around Wilcox too. I think that's probably mm-hmm. the epicenter of of scaled quail and in our state. And yeah, boy, they like to run as well. Um, you know, all of these species I, I chased before I got a dog. And so I just went out and burned boot leather, um, until, until I found them all. But, uh, yeah, I had, to, I had to put some miles in to find those scalies and also just out there exploring different habitats to find that right habitat. Uh, but then when I found it, I, I knew what it was. So, all right, let's move on to Merns then. Uh, I like to, I like to describe Merns as, I mean, it, it's a small bird that, almost has like big game level status. People travel from all over the country and even the world to come to Arizona and hunt Mern's quail. So I'll, uh, I'll pitch it back to you, Jim, since that's your country. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, most of the, the, the Merns are anywhere from 4,500 up to 5,600 uh, foot elevation. Uh, they're, they're, they're in the foothills or they're in the mountains themselves. And they're back in there. Uh, when, when, uh, and, and, you know, to, to, to really get, you know, into the burns, you've got to get over the first set of foothills and get back into the, to the mountainous country. A lot Mm -hmm. of times I'll get up on top of Ridge and then I, and then it's easier for me just to stay on that top of the Ridge and let my dogs run down. And, uh, burns, uh, are like what Brian was saying with the scalies. A lot of times I don't even start hunting those until 9.30 in the morning. And they're, they're a ground nesting bird. Mm-hmm. Scalies are ground nesting birds. Gambles, they, they, they uh, roost up in, in trees. But, uh, and that's one of the signs that you can physically see, especially with scalies and to the same uh, degree, the, the merns, the, they'll, they'll, they'll sit together at night with their bottoms towards each other and you'll be able to see a circle where all their scat is and everything. And, and, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a good indicator that, that boy, I'm in the same territory that the birds are. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, I, let let me, I I skipped over. They, they, they eat uh, a different food. Yeah, sure. The first six months our chicks are going to eat the bugs and the ants and the, Mm -hmm. the, the, the small invertebrates, but their claws are a little bit longer, and they dig oxalis and, and yellow nut sedge to get the bulbs. And that's how they get their, their protein, obviously, but that's how they get their moisture also. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll see the diggings a lot of times uh, on, on a little hillside underneath a tree or something like that. You'll think like a miniature rototiller went through the area, mm-hmm. and, and that's exactly where the merns have been feeding. Uh, they're opportunistic, just like any wild animal. And if there's a good crop of acorns, some years they'll eat some, you know, acorns like you wouldn't believe. Uh, so they're, it, 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 they are a real challenge. I mean, you got to be in shape to hunt merns. Like yep. you said, it's, it's, yep. it's big game hunting. There's no doubt about it for, for a seven ounce little bird. Right. You know, um, you, 
those birds, especially an adult male rooster, all of our quail are exquisitely beautiful birds. But if you're not from Arizona or the Southwest, coming out here, not knowing about that species and then, then seeing it or just seeing a picture of it. I mean, it's, it's hardly something that, you know, seems like it could be real. It's such a, just an attractive and extreme plumaged bird. It's crazy. But you also, you mentioned uh, how they, they, they kind of set up in a circle with their rear ends towards each other. I, I have a very vivid memory when I was a child uh, in the Ozarks. And back then there were feral fields everywhere um, and they were full of quail and rabbits. And it was a wonderful time to be a child in that country. Cause I was out, you know, busting through those bushes all the time. And I remember one especially freezing cold day and nothing stopped me from getting out when I was a kid, you know, I mean, I never thought about the weather, you know, but I got out and I found a covey of Bob whites in an absolute perfect circle. And it was so cold that they, they did not want to fly. I mean, I stood over them and looked straight down on them and they were a perfect little donut, um, all with their little heads facing out and their butts facing in. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's burned into the memory and I'll never lose that one. Well, I want to get in to hunting these critters. Um, but first, and perhaps I should have asked this earlier, but I'm curious about how both of you gentlemen got into upland hunting. Well, again, I, when I came out here, you know, I brought my bow with me, a couple rifles and, and, and a shotgun and everything. And uh, I'd never had, had to worry about drawing tags before and everything else. And, and uh, a, a neighbor of mine was a retired uh, outfitter for quail hunting. So I started going with him. And after that, I, you know, only hunted over dogs a couple of times my whole life. And I got hooked and, 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 uh, got into, he taught me how to train my dogs and how to do everything. And, and again, like I said, I, I was old enough at the time that I said, I better do something to, to keep me going. And, you know, you hear about that too often. Somebody retires and within two or three years, they're dead. That didn't sound too good to me. So I thought I better keep moving. And that's how I got into to the upland. And we, back in Indiana, I was, I was in pheasants forever. And uh, we had worked on habitat there. We'll get into later. And, and that really is, is, is the neatest way in the world to give back. Yeah. is 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 to help uh forest service blm private people whatever whoever wants to 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 improve their habitat pima county parks and recs i i I'll, we'll get into that mm-hmm. it is very fulfilling and it gets you outside oh yeah oh yeah for sure how about you brian well i'm uh from northern indiana also and from when i was uh, a wee lad to 40 years old I probably went fishing maybe 1,200 to 1,500 times because my father was (laughs) passionate about fishing. And so that's just what we did. And then hunting, I probably hunted maybe five times in in those years between zero and 40. Then I move Mm -hmm. out here and I'm in the liquor and wine business. 
and I'm working with a salesperson in Prescott, Arizona, and we got to talking about quail hunting. And I thought, wow, this sounds great. And he said, okay, why don't you meet me this weekend at this, this secret honey hole that I'm going to take you to? And by God, I got like six or seven birds hunting with this guy, and I was kind of hooked. So I went there with him a couple of times. And then moving forward, I worked with a salesperson who was working for me, who's probably 17 or 18 years younger than I am, but he'd been hunting his entire life. And uh, we just started going hunting together, and a couple more people joined in, and we do uh, opening weekend out at Burrow Creek every year and camp out and do that. It was it was a lot of fun for a long time, but it was about getting to getting around people that uh, do what they were doing and get me comfortable mm-hmm. in doing what I'm doing. So awesome. And this is a great state for it. There's so much public land uh, that uh, you can use. And then back in the day, we used um, we used basically Garmin stuff that we used for. Our, uh, we didn't actually have dogs at the time. We just hoofed it. Uh, put mm-hmm. in miles and look for them and all that. And uh, now we have this Onyx thing, which is which is great for uh, any hunters for Upland and anything else. Oh yeah, it's a great tool. I, I use it regularly. Well, I, I want to yeah. get into the methods of chasing these birds around, but before we do that, can one of you? And I don't expect exact dates, but uh, explain the the seasonal structure and and limits behind these birds, legalities around hunting them? Uh, The season, the general season for for gambles and scaled quail usually opens the the second week in in October, Mm -hmm. and it runs through the first uh, Sunday in, in February. And then the the Mern's quail opens December. What is it? The first Friday in in December, I think. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it ends the same time. And uh, it it uh, for me, it's again with dogs. Uh, it's it, it's it's too warm. I I don't start hunting till November the fifteenth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would have no problem with game and fish putting back the start of the season a week or two. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, game, the, the, it's, it's 15, uh, the, the, the limit's 15. The reason I'm hesitating, I've never got a limit in my life cause I don't care about getting a limit. So I, I, I just, mm-hmm. I, I have more fun going out with my dogs and just getting a few birds, but for gambles and scalies it's 15, and for the Burns quail, it's eight. Okay. Uh, more than enough. I mean, that, that's, oh, yeah. That, you know. Yeah, I feel like those are very generous limits. So very you mentioned so, you didn't want to hunt early in the season with your dogs. Why is that? Uh, down here, especially in this, with the last, not this year, but the previous two years, we've had enough rains and everything that there's really a lot of grass and uh there, there, there's too many snakes mm-hmm. uh, and my dogs are snake trained but again that isn't 100 percent because if you right if you come in from upwind and not downwind and this the, the dog doesn't smell the snake and you know yeah. always things can happen so that, that'd be the last thing i'd ever want to 
have to right. have is, is, is and, and you hear about it, somebody's dog yeah. getting bitten by a snake. Oh, sure. You, you know, Jim, I, uh, I, I'm very fond of snakes, including the, 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 you know, the ones with venom. Uh, and people exaggerate the danger of snakes all the time, but with these dogs, they are an actual real threat. Um, and, uh, you know, I have this hypothesis regarding dogs being able to scent snakes. I've seen on on a couple occasions firsthand, dogs literally walk right over the top of a rattlesnake. And fortunately, that rattlesnake didn't move, didn't buzz, just relied on its camouflage. But for a sit-and-wait predator like a rattlesnake, it would make a lot of sense that they don't have a lot of odor to them. I'm not saying dogs can't smell them, but... From my observation, it would appear that snakes don't smell like much, even to a good dog. Either of you fellas seen anything different on that? Yeah, well, so Michael, no, I take I... a different I take a different approach a little bit than what Jim had said, in that uh, I go out an opening weekend, but I don't take my dog and I hunt uh, the choya. And I hunt the choya because I don't take the dogs in the choya because of the mm -hmm. the real possibility they're getting full of the cacti and can, literally can every year i run choya into rattlesnakes what's that can, can you so, pause and um, tell us about choya yeah so uh <laughs> so the choya are these uh are these gnarly cacti uh that usually are at a certain elevation and um they almost are like they'll get on you and they have little balls of prickly things and when a dog gets in it it's a mess getting them out and uh but they hold a lot of gambles quail. And so they don't get hunted too much because people with dogs don't really want to take them in there. So at the beginning of uh, usually gamble season, uh, we'd leave our dogs at home and we go hunt these uh, choya areas and do pretty well because there's not a lot of pressure in there. And then around the November 15th that Jim was talking about, that's when we either bring the dogs out or I go to a higher elevation earlier in the year where there's not as many snakes as where they're currently at. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, uh, yeah. yeah, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, a lot of people uh, don't even look at the choy just because of what it is, but they really ought to look at it because there's a lot of gambles that are held in a lot of those areas. I feel like that is a good, good method to approach the season. I don't think, although on the other hand, that you are nearly extreme enough when you were describing what a choy is, because <laughs> those things mm. are, her in, I mean, they're a beautiful cactus, but I mean, they, you barely have to, I mean, it feels like you don't even have to touch them for them to get in you, but, uh, they are. And that, I think that's where the term jumping choya comes from. Of course they don't mm -hmm. jump, yeah. but they would seemingly do because you barely have to get anywhere close to them. And they just have a way of driving into you deep, even worse for hard headed, um, stubborn dogs with a lot of drive. Um, and yeah, my dog, if there is a choya within a hundred square yards, he's going to find that choya and, and get himself stuck. <laughs> so they are, they are nasty yet beautiful cactus, mm -hmm. <sighs> but yeah, those snakes, uh, they're, they're a real issue. Uh, like I said, I've always kind of tried to talk down the danger of rattlesnakes. I've been stomping around in venomous snake habitat my whole life. Um, I, I've never uh, been close to getting bit, even coming in cl close contact with them. Not to say they're not a danger. They are a real danger, but, uh, you know, they're not aggressive. They're, they're defensive and they're just, they're trying to protect themselves. But with dogs, they're, they're a real and legitimate threat to look out for. And, and, you know, dogs are tough, that's for sure, but they can, they can still kill a dog. Right. The, 
the 13 or 14 years that I've been hunting quail out here, uh, believe this or not, I've never seen a rattlesnake. And only really? one time uh, that I heard one after I'd been hunting for maybe an hour and there was a nice place to take a break and a wash and I mm -hmm. was watering the dogs and I, I put Cairo syrup on, on bread and that's, that's give them some energy after the first hour and everything. And, and I was having some uh, peanut butter myself and we got ready to leave and about 12, 15 feet away, I thought this bush was going to explode and it was a rattlesnake making all the noise and everything. But again, he didn't bother us. And, and yep. I, I've never seen a snake, but you, you, you got to be cognizant of the fact that, that, that when you take your dogs out uh, in the warm weather, you're, you're asking for your, your odds aren't in your favor. Right, right. So, Jim, I'm you know, on the opposite I, I, side. Of the 20 years that yeah. I've hunted out here, uh, I think I've seen a rattlesnake about 18 of the 20 years, mostly oh, during goodness. the beginning of the season. And I've gotten really close to a lot of them. And, uh, you know, they don't bother me. I don't bother them. I don't have the dogs around because it's at the beginning of the season. So I just know where they are and walk away. Yeah, you bet. But, uh, you know... I but I did have one. Uh, I did have one mutt dog that got bit by a rattlesnake, and fortunately, it got bit on its nose, and the face literally blew up, so it looked like a bear head on this Aww. poor dog. But and, and over time, he, you know, he got uh, okay. But yeah. uh, they could. They said you're lucky it uh, hit the head because of the cartilage kept it from going the 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 poisons to get to the rest of the body. So that was actually a good thing that it got nipped there. Wow, but, that you know um, that's interesting, because when you shoot, like, okay, for instance, I don't like shooting rabbits and squirrels with shotguns. I like to use twenty twos, because unlike a bird, they have that connective tissue, and that connective tissue seems to like just soak up blood, um, and you can lose a lot of meat shooting them with a shotgun. Um, with birds, you don't seem to have that problem, uh, and I assume it's it's due to a lack of that connective tissue. But yeah, I wonder if that connective tissue can kind of soak up and hold that, that venom just like blood. I, I mean, I'm thinking on, on the fly here, but uh, yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. hmm. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I like those snakes, but yeah, I see them a lot too. I'm with Brian in that camp, but, uh, but then again, I'm out there, you know, in the early part of the season as well. All right, so we have we have a good sense of, of we know what birds are, we have now. We know where they live. Um, let's talk. We know the seasons and day uh, seasons and limits. Let's talk about how to hunt them. Uh, does a prospective hunter just go out and buy a twenty two rifle and go looking for quail? It's a trick question. That'd probably not be a good idea. <laughs> All right, and it'd be kind of illegal. Well, then tell me how they do it, then please. Uh, so they would uh, buy a shotgun first of all. Mm -hmm. And uh, ideally, they'd find somebody that could be a mentor of some kind or another that could take them out to different areas and kind of point out what they look for. But uh, if mm -hmm. that is a problem, for whatever reason, there is a ton of resources uh, that uh, are available for people to do some research and figure it out, including Arizona Game and Fish. So there's actually some maps on the Arizona Game and Fish website that shows exactly where the primary and secondary areas of distribution are of gambles and scalies and merns, which is great. 
Uh, and mm -hmm. there's a, probably four or five different websites at the very minimum that talk about either Upland Game or Quail uh, on Facebook I'm talking about, where people share to a degree information on, on what's going on. And then we have this thing called Onyx, which is a, which is a uh, software package that will show you um, where the species are um, in a given area. Uh, and actually Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever actually supply information to Onyx uh, so you can show on there where they're at. So one of the things that, um, that I've done, so I got into a rut probably three years ago and kept going to the same place and measured uh, the population based on my little bitty area of where I go. And if I didn't see a lot then oh, there must not be a lot. But mm -hmm. I thought, well, let's get smart here a little bit and let's start taking the tools that are in place. And in this case, Onyx and look at areas that would make sense. And one of the things that I've found is that when you find water and I'm talking gambles now of any kind, uh, there's more than likely a chance that you're gonna find uh, gambles quail because they need some water in order to survive. So uh, on Onyx, they actually have uh, the areas where people have actually put in um, little water retention areas. Uh, so for example, if you're going on the road, so let's back up. During the 1950s, there were some bird hunters, quail and dove hunters, it decided that uh, there should be water that were put out in the desert to maintain the bird populations. So if you take the road, which is called Bartlett Dam Road and go down there with Onyx, you will find water retention areas called Quail 1, Quail 2, Quail 3, and Quail 4. They were put in in either the late 50s or early 60s, I believe. Uh, and they're still there. And I found them uh, a year, two years ago now, and they've always had some birds there. And uh, so what I've found is that when you're looking for birds, and again, I'm talking gambles, more than likely if you find some area that has water of any kind, a cow area or these things, uh, you'll find birds. Interesting. Yeah, to, I, I know that country. That, mm -hmm. yeah, to tie in with that, Brian, the Arizona Game and Fish has a spiral uh, book that lists all of their uh, water catchments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a it's it, it's an inch and a quarter thick book that lists them by yep. game management units, and you're yep. hitting it right on the head. That's exactly yep. how I started, and 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 you know, I mean, uh, friends are friends, but they're not going to show you all their their <laughs> prime places and everything. Right. And yeah. and uh, that's half the fun, and that's that's what I did my first several years especially when gasoline was only a buck and a half a gallon or something like that. I did a lot of scouting seven, eight months out yeah. of the year and, and found some really, really neat places and mark them on my GPS. And, and, uh, but I used the water cashments as, as a, as a guide quote unquote quail don't need water because they get enough from their grasses and, and right. sedges and, and, and everything else. But when it's 110 degrees out and they, they, they go to water and they do the same thing in the, in the fall a lot of times. So uh, water is, 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 is a good place to start. Well, yeah. you gentlemen. So Jim, you and doing... I started the same way, it sounds like, in that we, neither one of us used dogs initially. 
And I think that was really good uh, for me anyway, because it made you stop and look and listen and go to higher ground and see if you could find things. And uh, I tend to get away from that a little bit uh, when I have dogs and kind of more rely on the dogs, but uh, at least for gambles and scalies. Uh, but that was good training. You're making a real good point on, on starting because not everybody, just like I didn't, and you didn't have dogs and everything. But I, I, I would, would bury myself in a hillside, take my binoculars, and, 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 and uh, experiment with a couple quail calls. And I learned a lot about quail before the season and, and everything before I had dogs. So you're, you're, you're 100% correct. Mm-hmm. So I'd been doing this, let's say, for 10 years. So I've been doing it for 23. But after 10 years, I learned that uh, there's some people have have a uh, whistle that they carry with them. I've never seen it before. I've always had the quail call, but some people carry the hawk call. And uh, as you guys probably know, when the quail go up and they hear that that uh, hawk call, they just go right back down because they know there's uh, an enemy flying around. And I had no idea until I had seen it with somebody that I had hunted with. But you had asked uh, Michael uh, earlier about uh, going hunting. So one of the things we didn't touch on was the gun. So we use a shotgun for uh, going after uh, quail. And uh, seven and a halves or sixes, as Jim had talked about earlier. And obviously, there's different gauges of guns. You could use any one that you want, whatever's comfortable for you. It seems as you get older, you want lighter guns like a 28 gauge just because, you know, you're hoofing it around a lot and the, the less poundage you have to carry around, the better. But um, the traditional Upland one, I supposedly was the uh, Browning Sweet 16, the 16 gauge, but you don't find that too much anymore. Although they did, I think, roll it back out again. But the 20 gauge and the uh, 12 gauge seem to be the, the main ones that people uh, use. Um and it seems like over and under seem to be the more prevalent of them, but supposedly the side-by-sides uh, are coming back. Right. Yeah. You, you look a lot cooler out there with a the side-by-side anyway. Yeah. I shoot an over under 20 gauge and I love it dearly, but yeah. well, um, you guys, I, I gotta tell you, you're doing me a favor sending folks to those tanks and water catchments. I do the exact opposite because that's that's where people go. That's where they go to find those birds, and there's birds there. But a lot of times they're pressured and smart, so I, I avoid tanks when I'm out quail hunting. I just find desert washes and walk them. And yeah, it's the same thing I, I tell new hunters too because I think a lot of times new hunters feel like they have to have a known location. Um, and that's just not the case, especially with gambles quail. If you're a new hunter and you live in Phoenix, go out, find some state trust land, some BLM land, some forest service land, some desert, pick a wash, start hiking it. Odds are you're going to find gambles quail eventually. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of those birds out there. And uh, yeah. And quite honestly, I mean, you might, you're probably going to run into the populations that other fellows don't know about. And, 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 are not out there chasing. So it's, it's, it's not that hard. Um, I, I did want to touch just briefly on safety with quail hunting. And this is fresh in my mind because I've had my little boy out recently and at 10 years old, he's just old enough, um, that I, I trust with supervision to deal with the excitement of a loaded gun and a flushing cubby. Uh, and, and I will say that he is a responsible little man, but he's also a little man. And, and I, I want to, 
I want to tread, tread carefully there, but, um, you know, it's one of the only kinds of hunting that it's, it's kind of mandatory to walk around with a chambered gun. Now that gun should always be on safety until you pull the trigger, but still you're walking around with a chambered gun. Oftentimes you're hunting with other, other people. It's a social kind of hunting in a lot of cases. So, you know, that's where Hunter Orange is absolutely mandatory for the upland hunter. Um, being in control of your barrel and being aware of where it's pointed at all times. And also I like to throw in keeping safety an active part of the hunt between you and the people you're hunting with. Cause a lot of times after you flush a covey of birds, safeties go off. And if, if a shot doesn't present itself, you might forget that that gun is off safety and, and go back to carrying it, you know, ready to go. So I like to check folks. I like folks to check me. Some people take offense to that. And if it bothers them, that's probably not somebody you want to hunt with anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, I want to remind folks of this because I think safety is of paramount importance uh, in upland hunting. Uh, folks do get shot doing this. All right. Well, I guess probably ought to talk about dogs. Um, I like to tell new hunters, no dog, no problem. I know a lot of dog guys, uh, they don't like hearing that because it, it's all... Hunting with dogs, it's almost more about the dog than it is about the quail hunting. Um, definitely more about the dogs than the hunter anyway. And while it adds a whole new la- layer of richness and excitement that comes with having your dog in the field, also a whole other layer of stress because they like to hurt themselves. But uh, it, it's not necessary. Um, you can get out there, you can find quail, you can shoot them without a dog. And that, that goes for all three species. Um, I will say with Mern's quail that tend to hold really tight, I've put in a 10 mile day and never kicked up a covey in great habitat. But I also, you know, I've been out and shot six birds on my own without a dog, you know, so it is doable. It just takes a little, little boot leather to get there. But let's talk about dogs because uh, dogs are a, a great fun part of this. Um, and maybe maybe let's start with breeds. What 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 breeds and, and what are the differences in, in, in those breeds that, that people use for hunting quail? Well, I think mostly uh, the guys that I hunt with and and uh, that have been retired and been down here for, for years uh, are running German short hair pointers because of, of, of again they don't have a lot of hair and they can take the heat. Uh, uh, a lot of guys are use Brittany's mm-hmm. and, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a real flexible dog come down from Minnesota or Canada and, and, and they can, they can hunt the grouse up there and, and, and they can come down here and, and, and hunt the quail. Uh, but it, it's all pointing dogs. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the people don't realize that, that, you know, coming from pheasant country and everything, where it's mostly flushing dogs, that uh, uh, I think that 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 uh, I I only hunt with one person that, that only has a flushing dog, and and uh, but with my it, it, it's controlled enough that the, the uh, that uh, he keeps it close when my dog goes on point. He'll, he'll hold his dog back and everything. And I never would have done that until 
he got with me a few years ago. And that's a great combination because my dog isn't the greatest retriever and his is. Mm-hmm. And we don't lose near the birds that we used to. So, but I, I, I uh, and I'm not that well versed on other, uh, some other pointing dogs, but, but uh, you see all kinds down here and, and if they can put up with, and if they learn quickly enough about the, the, the cat claw and the, and, and, and the, the different things that'll stick you, uh, they can, they can do great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that somebody had told me when I was trying to figure out what dog I wanted was keep in mind that you're going to spend probably 10% of your time hunting with the dogs and 90% of it just hanging with the family. So whatever species and the disposition of the particular dog, you need to take that into consideration. So, um, I mean, I've seen the Britneys are a big deal that I've seen around here. Labs are a big deal because people do upland and they do duck hunting. I got a poodle pointer because I like waterfowl and it's a versatile hunting dog. So it's a pointing dog and um, I take it duck hunting. So we do both and not realizing you could actually train a German short hair pointer to do the same thing. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, until after the fact, but um, it's more about what uh, what kind of dog people are interested in and would fit in with their lifestyle. Because there's some, you know, German shorthairs they they need a lot of energy and the life they they have a lot of energy I should yeah. say, and they need to run a lot. And then poodle pointers, not as much, and um, some other dogs not as much, and some a whole lot. So it's just a matter of what lifestyle uh, you have, uh, and and picking out the dog. Yeah. Yeah. I I went with, with, what cunning you do with it? I went with a German short hair pointer. Um, and he, uh, he is an exceptional waterfowl retriever and there was nothing that I trained or taught. He just, I mean, he, he's a good retriever on land too, but boy, he really excels in the water. Um, and, and he'll, he'll chase down an injured duck and everything. Now I'm making him sound like a great, great hunting dog. The truth is I have failed him on training myself because I trying to train him myself. I've never trained a dog. He's got all the genetics. He's got all the stuff. Um, but he's also still will run through a covey of Mern's quail and bust him up sometimes. So, uh, he's not perfect by any stretch, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you what though, he is probably the most loving, affectionate dog I've ever known. Um, and, and I hear that a lot of, of the breed is, is like that, but you know, he wants to sleep under the covers every night and, uh, uh, he's, he's great with the kids. You just, you couldn't ask for a better family dog, um, except for that energy level that you got to deal with that. That's always going to be there. I like to say, you know, when my dogs are out in the field, you know, they're my dogs. When we're home, they're my wife's dogs and they're, they're (laughs) they're the greatest family dog in the world. And, and they'll, they'll adapt to, 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 to any situation yeah okay. they got plenty of energy but uh again it goes back to the old adage you know a dog's life a dog sleeps a lot so there you know there's no problem having a dog in the house and a nah. hunting dog and... I, uh, you know one of I the things out... you had talked about you had talked about guns uh earlier and one of the things that um that i insist upon when i take people uh hunting with my dogs is, you know, some people walk with the uh, barrel facing towards the ground and some people walk facing up in the air. And I said, well, look, we have dogs. I prefer that, I, I insist actually that you keep that gun pointed up in the air because you got those dogs down there and I don't want any accidents happening to my little kids. 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a great thing to add there, Brian. Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess the only th- other thing I'll add with these dogs is we do live in rough country, um, and these dogs have a ton of hunting drive, and they have little to no regard for their own safety when they're out there running. I've had to staple up holes in Edward in the field. Um, I've had him at one point he, he had cut the underside of his tongue sticking his head in a hole. I don't know how it happened. It was a gopher hole. Maybe he got bit, but, uh, he, he bled more than I thought he could. It was very scary. And I mean, I was, it, it would not heal up cause he kept lapping. Um, and finally, or right before I was about decided it was Sunday night, we were in the middle of nowhere to go find an emergency vet. I got him under the sleeping bag and got him to go to sleep and it, and it finally stopped bleeding, but oh my God, it was scary. Um, you know, and then, then he, you know, he, he wasn't much for hunting the next day. It was all about recovery the next day and getting floods in him. But, but yeah, these dogs, boy, they just, they, all they care about is finding those birds. Um, again, with little to no regard for their own well being. Yep. Another thing that I found when you're talking about dogs and safety and everything is this, and I put it on all the time now is a chest protector. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of different companies make them and everything and get one that's got a double layer on the chest and then, uh, uh, you know, three big snaps or something on the back or Velcro. The other thing in, in too many things we find out the hard way uh, is dog insurance. Our mm-hmm. dogs, there's like you said, they're 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 in the tougher area in the world to 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 be hunting upland game than than Arizona. And uh, I've found this is my third dog, and and I've got pet insurance now, and because you're you're going to have a, a a time or two in the dog's life when when you have to go to the emergency clinic and it's a five or eight thousand dollar bill insurance is really handy something really to consider that's good advice well fellas um i want to get to uh your respective chapters Uh, i want to hear about the work your chapters do and how people can get involved but before we go there um, i want to touch on one of my favorite parts of this and that that's eating these birds um Brian, I remember last year at our camo at the Capitol event, you grilled up some quail there and, and gave me a taste. And I was blown away at how good they were. But boy, it was a simple method. Um, but maybe you can tell us about that and, and other ways that, that both of you gentlemen like to prepare these birds for the table. Sure. So uh, the, the way I cook uh, Gamble's quail is uh, the spatchcock method, which is, I first of all, when I clean the birds, I... I uh, breast them and I use it in the legs and I take, so I eat the legs and the breast and I take the uh, breast and I take, put it in my palm and take my other palm and press it down. So it's as flat as possible. That's what the spatchcock is uh, all about. So what that does is it makes the meat cooked as evenly as possible. Then I uh, get a, I'd use iron skillets when I cook. And so I put butter in the iron skillet, and then I use Tony Chachri, which is a Creole sauce or a, a Creole spice. It's in this green canister. It's in like every grocery store. And I sprinkle it on one side or the other, fry it in this, uh, in this butter. doesn't take very long at all, and they're delicious. So all the little events that we have, that's pretty much what I serve as a appetizer. <laughs> 
Boy, they were good. Yeah. I, I would add, the, the, just to warn folks, that it's so easy. I mean, quail are going to be good no matter what you do to them. You know, they're, if for even a person that is new to eating wild game, quail is a safe bet. It's a mild, white, delicious meat. But mm-hmm. it's still really easy to overcook. Um, and while it's still going to be good if you overcook it, um, I always warn folks that, you know, it's going to cook a lot quicker than you think it is. Um, and, and, you know, mm-hmm. meat cooked properly is always going to take taste better than meat that's overcooked. But how about you, Jim? You got any special ways you like to cook these birds up? I, I, I do. Um, uh, I, I breast them out. I skin my birds. I breast them out. Uh, it takes me a long time to do it because I enjoy that that wing joint is is that's amazing and and so I I, I you got to get that just right so you can cut that I don't like to use shears or anything on the on the wings and then I've got a a, a good solid breast I always uh, take the legs and then then I I I I usually do that in the field and then I have my cooler with me and I have a couple ice packs in there and keep them cool till I come home. Now I'll, I'll take the second wing off and then I'll soak it in, in salt uh, water overnight in the refrigerator and then rinse it and dry it real well and freeze it. And then when I go to cook it, a lot of times uh, I'll, I, my wife and my, my, my kids, we didn't grow up on farms and everything. So they, they, uh, uh, like you said, the white meat and everything, it is, it is so tasty. There's, there's no gamey flavor or taste to it, but I'll, I'll, uh, use a fillet knife and I'll cut, uh, two or three, uh, slices off each side of the breast. And then I'll, I'll put it in a casserole dish and with, with mushrooms and, 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 uh, rice and sour cream, and it keeps it really moist. And, and it's wonderful. Wow. That That's does sound the, good. The best way we do it for, then the whole family gets to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'll, I'll pitch in here. I, I do it a little bit different than you fellas, uh, at least as far as processing goes. Um, one thing I always try to tell, I feel like people, since birds are durable, a bird is going to last longer in heat, carrying it around all day in the back of a vest than say a rabbit, a rabbit will spoil quicker. But so, and I think because of that, people tend to, they kind of abuse their birds. You know, I, I know duck hunters that'll just like set, the, let those ducks sit there in a pile in the sun for hours. And I just, you know, whether it harms anything or not, I can't do it. I'm, I'm very type A about my meat. So I always tell folks, always have a cooler with some frozen ice jugs in your truck. Um, and, and while those birds are durable, you can carry them around for a while. If you're going to be out for a really long day, throw some, throw some thing, uh, Fill some Gatorade bottles up with water, freeze them, and throw them in the back of your vest. You know, just something to cool those birds down. But I like to get them on ice as quick as I can. But here's where my whole thing falls apart because then I bring them home, um, whole, and I throw them in a bag and I throw them in the crisper in my refrigerator and I will leave them there for up to a week. Um, I do that because birds pluck the best either fresh as soon as you shoot them or a few days later. And, uh, I like to pluck my birds. I like that skin. If you can do them just right and get that skin crispy, it's the best part of the bird in my opinion. But, um, 
yeah, I, I'll leave those. And we, you know, when you get home from a hunt and you're tired anyway, you don't feel like plucking birds, you know, plucking birds is a process. Huh. So I, I like to leave them in the fridge uh, and again, up to a week, I've had them in there up to 10 days. I wouldn't recommend any more than that, but um, some people say the flavor gets better if you, if you let your birds age a bit, just like you would age uh, steak. But uh, then, you know, when I'm rested up and uh, feeling good, I will have a, a pour myself a beer and grab a cigar and I will spend a couple hours plucking birds out on my porch. And it's a pleasant experience. So um, <laughs> that's how I like to do it. It's a little bit more of a process, but I find it rewarding. So there's that. But uh, I have definitely spent uh, plenty of plenty of nights camping, uh, cooking spatchcock birds over a fire that I have went ahead and skinned out for the sake of sake of ease but all right well i think i think that takes us from start to finish as far as hunting quail goes or at least uh at least it skims the surface uh let's talk about quail forever and your respective chapters um i would like to hear from each of you you know how your chapters are similar you know maybe maybe uh you know quail forever as, as a national organization but then also what what makes your chapters a little bit different if you don't mind and anybody's welcome to sure. jump in Okay. No, again, like I said, uh, uh, I was in pheasants forever back in Indiana, and it was a natural uh, to, to get with the quail forever here. Uh, one of the main things um, that's, that's the same, pheasants forever and quail forever, is that the, the money that you pay into that organization, only the $35 of uh, for the national membership doesn't stay within your chapter. So all the money that we raise, all the money that is donated to our chapter uh, stays in, in Pima and Santa Cruz County. Uh, and we use that for habitat. Mm -hmm. um, we work just like Brian's group does works very closely. We're, we're lucky that our Arizona game and fish department is as progressive as they are, uh, and and everything they do is science based, and and we work with them with projects, be it with the Forest Service or BLM or private landowners, and if if any one of those want to improve their habitat, we we get involved and and help them monetarily, help them with their with our volunteer labor, which you know is 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 free labor. And it makes uh, all the difference in the world on how we give back. Uh, and, and we work, you know, people, you know, one of our, one of the, our, our groups that we're starting to do more and more work with is Tucson Audubon. And people say, Tucson Audubon, and you guys are killing birds and you're working together. And then they take some, that is such a great arrangement because we're all, helping the, 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 the birds and improving the habitat so we have more birds. Yep. So it, 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 it is, uh, our, our, our group is, there's 200 people. There's probably 30%, 25% are snowbirds because of, of, of a lot of it is because of the Mern's quail in Southern Arizona. And, uh, we're, 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 a, a progressive group and if and if you'd want to join you just have to google southern arizona quail forever and then at the bottom it, 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 you you can click on how to join and it and, and you can do it with a credit card or you can you can call quail forever 
and and then you're on our mailing list, and it's it's it couldn't be simpler. So to clarify, and this was a question I had because I know uh, my friend Greg Munther, um, he was involved mm-hmm. with Southern Arizona Quail Forever, but he lives up in Montana. Um, so when you join Quail Forever, you're not automatically, I, I, maybe you are automatically put into the chapter where you live, but can you request to be part of another chapter if you enjoy Mern's Quail and traveling down to Southern Arizona? Can can you join that 100%. chapter specifically? You bet. You can be in any chapter you want to. You know, you're, you're in the national organization and then you can participate and, and, and get the, 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 uh, ours is, is over the internet, the, the magazine and everything or, or monthly, uh, output. And so, yeah, it, it, it's real simple. Awesome. All right, Brian, can you tell us about Valley of the Sun? So Valley of the Sun, just like Jim's organization and Jim's the QF organization in Southern Arizona, works the same way in that the 35 bucks of membership goes to corporate, but everything we raise here in Arizona stays in Arizona, which I think is a huge, a huge um, uh, thing for us as a habitat organization because a lot of the other habitat mm-hmm. organizations, a whole lot more money goes to someplace outside of Arizona. So that's a big benefit to us. And we do a lot of the, um, our organization uh, nationally, uh, they want us at least 50% of our monies to go to the local habitat, which we do more than that here in in our chapter, but we also use it for recruitment and we also use it for education. So for example, in January, we're gonna have a women's hunt. Uh, We've been doing this for four years now. We'll have 27 women that'll come out for the weekend. We have people from other organizations that help as um, guides for them. And these are women that have never shot a shotgun before to ones that, you know, normally go out and and hunt. And uh, it's a great learning experience for them. And it's supported by Arizona Game and Fish. In fact, we do it out at Horseshoe Ranch off uh, Bloody Basin Road. But we also do things, as Jim's group does, where we have family uh, gatherings where uh, we call it Quail Day. I forgot what they call it, but basically you get families in there and you try to introduce families and kids to um, to quail hunt because it's an easy way to get kids out and families out, you know, outside to do things. Yeah. Um, so we also started, and I know you did a podcast about this, Michael, but we did, uh, we do and continue to do the small game challenge. And it's not only uh, quail, but it's uh, blue grouse and squirrels and all the other small games. So we're in, we're in fact, um, kind of a small game organization, just because these are kind of introductory species and a way to introduce people uh, to this kind of thing. And I'm sure you said it on the podcast, the fact that it costs $25 for somebody to um, sign up for the small game challenge. And we take that $25 plus t- we actually add $25 and put it into habitat into uh, um, different projects around uh, the greater Phoenix area. So uh, one of the things that we focused on is Robbins Butte, which is about 45 minutes west approximately of Phoenix. It's kind of the closest area where uh, a general anybody can go there and hunt on 8,000 acres. And we put in three miles of uh, water bowls. So small game, including quail, can find some water in that 110 degree heat. Uh, we actually started uh, six years ago. Uh, if you go there now, you'll find that it's almost like a Midwestern farm kind of thing. There's all sorts of plots of land 
uh, with different grains like sunflowers and various things that wild game um, are into. And uh, we started that by donating seed probably seven years ago. Now they have about 160 or 200 acres of, of um, groomed area. So yeah, habitat's a huge deal for us as it is for Jim's group. Uh, education of families is a big deal for both of our groups. Um, and recruitment of uh, new hunters and uh, anybody that's interested in hunting because of the kind of species that we deal with uh, is a big deal for both of our groups. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I can say, you know, from an outside perspective and, you know, I, I shouldn't even say this out loud. As much as I, I respect Quail Forever, I'm not a member, but it's it's because if you're, I pay my dues already in places and I just can't afford to be a member of every single group. One of the things about Arizona is we are so lucky that we have such a large uh, and and dedicated, we're almost saturated with conservation groups, people out there wanting to do good work. And that's one of the best things about hunting is there's something about that tangible connection to the wildlife that makes you want to get in there and do good, to give back. And, oh my gosh, we've got a bunch of them, you know, um, antelope, elk, quail, ducks, we got them all. And I just can't afford to pay all of them, but I support, always support you guys whenever and wherever I can. And I can tell you from an outside perspective that both of your organizations, whether it be education programs, habitat improvement, restoration are very, very well respected. I probably don't have to tell you that, but, but I want to do anyway, a lot of respect for quail forever in Arizona. You guys do great things and, and, I'll personally thank you for that because, uh, yeah, it's it's obvious the work that you do. Thank you. So for somebody wanting to join up, what can they expect? Uh, do you have volunteer opportunities? I mean, how, how do they how do they because I, I tell new hunters all the time. I'm like, hey, if if you want help, uh, if you want to find some good hunting spots, the best way to do that is join a conservation organization. Get to know those guys, because um, once folks can see that you're in it for the right reasons, uh, you know, they're willing to share. But so how, how do folks get involved with you guys and what can they expect when they do? So for uh, Valley of the Sun Quail Forever, um, you can go to VOTSQF.com to sign up, just like Jim has a website for, you know, his group to sign up. Uh, but we have a couple things that, um, so you can sign up and get a newsletter, which we put out uh, two times a month that shows all the activities that we have going on. Uh, we probably have four or five major volunteer projects that people can do um, during the year. We have banquets, we have uh, pint nights. We just had a pint night the other day. We have chapter hunts. So we had a chapter hunt actually last Saturday out at Roosevelt Lake. Uh, we usually have it down actually in Jim's territory, but because uh, what we had heard about the Mearns quail population this year, we decided to let them do their thing and we'll uh, go there another year. But um, we take them to different places because it all ties in with that um, uh, small game challenge. So if they can, we can go to areas and show them areas where they can get different species of quail, that's kind of what we're about too. Mm -hmm. um, so go to the website and um, it'll show every all the activities that we have going on and uh, they can get as involved or not as involved as they want. But uh, be assured that any uh, monetary uh, contribution or things that go to the chapter helps the hunting and the habitat and everything else here in Arizona. 
That's great. Uh, before before I move on to Southern uh, Southern Arizona Quail Forever and Jim, I just want to make one comment about that small game challenge, and I've talked a lot about it. Um, and I would encourage folks that are interested in that to go go listen to the podcast we did on it. But holy hell, man, that was so much fun. It took me five years to get that thing done. Um, but uh, they were five good years and just had a blast doing it. And I think it is such a cool program to have. So, so yeah, thanks for that. All right, Jim. Southern Arizona Quill Forever and, and, and joining and, and, and everything is is pretty much just what, what Brian went through. And you get on the Southern Arizona Quill Forever website. And uh, again, we, we put out a, a, a monthly newsletter, but on, on, on the, the website itself, it's got all the history for the last 13, 14 years that our, our uh, club's been in existence. And uh, you, again, you can be in, as active as you want, but the, the main thing is, is, is to meet fellow uh, hunters. And there's, there's a fair amount of, of ladies in our group and uh, they can help you. I don't if it's, if it's training your dog, if it's, if it's, we have a, a, a family day where we have uh the turkey organization and the uh, trout organizations and people that do uh, GPS work and and it's 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 uh, all about trying to to explain what we do and to try to get more people uh, at ease with with being outside, being around other people. Uh, if they want to carry a gun or not carry a gun and and again with with getting outside is is uh 90% of it and uh then we have volunteer days for earth day uh we've worked with the coronado monument down on the border uh us forest service uh for the last 6 years and we put in what's called rock dams which slow down water and in small washes and everything and uh, we've put almost 2,000 rock dams in in those seven or eight years. Wow. So it, it, it uh, and we volunteer to do that. And then some of the monies that we've raised from our banquet and everything, we pay uh, other organizations and then they get high school kids involved. And it, it, it just multiplies and, and, and uh, it is, it is a very fulfilling uh to be a, a, a Quail Forever member and help other people get involved. Awesome. Well, I want to personally thank both of you for for the work that you do and for being here, of course, today. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of covering covering upland hunting. Uh, and I certainly want to encourage listeners, especially if you haven't, haven't tried upland hunting, boy, it gets you out in some of the most beautiful places in Arizona at some of the most beautiful times of year. And it puts delicious food on the plate and it's just a great experience all together. And if you enjoy that, certainly join up with quail forever and uh, yeah, contribute to all this, all this great stuff that we've talked about tonight. Did we leave anything out? Anything you fellas want to add? Did we miss anything? Uh, just, I'd like to do a shout out to the Arizona sportsman's for wildlife conservation, which is the license plates that are around the state. And it's a group of conservation people that give grants to folks like us. So 
we literally are doing twice the projects that we would normally do because of the uh, the help from the Wildlife Conservation Group. And uh, they have licenses. You'll probably see them around with the Wildlife of Arizona on the license plate. And mm -hmm. I think it costs $25 and it goes to the grant. So a little shout out to them for their help in making all this uh, work. Awesome. Thanks for that, Brian. I got that license plate on my truck too. And, and they, uh, they provided a grant to Arizona backcountry hunters and anglers for our hunting for sustainability camp this year too. So, so big thanks for me too. All good. All right. Well, thanks again, gentlemen, for being here. I certainly appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I hope to get out in the field with you this year. All right. Thank you, Michael. Right. Take care guys. Thank you. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know how to how to lift up John and Brian uh, in the way they deserve. Those two are, are just not only just exceptional people, but exceptional conservationists. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if you can be into conservation for the wrong reasons, but those fellows are certainly in it for the right reasons. And and boy, do they volunteer a lot of their time and do a lot of good work for. Arizona's sporting heritage for upland habitat and of course for, for upland bird species and uh, I personally uh, just appreciate the heck out of both of those guys and I appreciate them being on the show and I'm sure that you feel the same as I do after listening to that I would encourage you to if you're not a member of quail forever or you know if, if upland's not your thing if you like elk go join whatever conservation group that you feel most closely tied to. Um, I'll tell you, you'll find some of the best people in the sporting community involved in conservation. And um, yeah, they, they can all use your help and your support. And you know, giving, giving back, uh, it just makes you feel good. Um, so if that's the only reason you want to join up and pay your dues, go for it. But I would encourage you to go all in, dive head first, start going out on habitat projects getting your hands dirty doing some work meeting some great people having good times um because man conservation this is where it's at all right well with that please don't forget that this show is made possible by the arizona wildlife federation um and heck you can join our organization too uh just get on our website at the link in the show notes uh peruse around um, decide decide if you want to be a supporter and uh, if you do, there will be a link that will allow you to do that. You'll receive our, our glossy quarterly magazine full of great articles about Arizona's wildlife, public lands, and conservation that I know that you will enjoy. And um, also, please don't forget to write in to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. And give me your show suggestions. Tell me what you like, what you dislike. Um, I would love to hear from you. And uh, I guess we'll wrap it up on that note and i will see you all again in two weeks enjoy your holiday <laughs>